that I've got a lot of things that are worth money. I've got a lot of other things that are worth nothing, but I keep them because I do love them, because they do uh, mean something to me. And um, I think that's the single most important thing about it all, that what it's worth is uh, on the marketplace is irrelevant. What matters is how much it's worth to you. Welcome to Spark Joy, the podcast dedicated to celebrating the KonMari method and the transformative power of surrounding yourself with joy and letting go of all the rest. With your hosts and certified KonMari consultants, Kristen Ivey and Karen Sochi. And now, here's the show. Our guest today is Lloyd Alter. Lloyd Alter is design editor of Treehugger, a prominent media outlet dedicated to driving sustainability mainstream. Living in Toronto, Canada, he has been an architect, developer, inventor, and prefab promoter. He contributes to MotherNatureNetwork.com, The Guardian, and Azure Magazine, and is a junk adjunct professor teaching sustainable design at Ryerson University School of Interior Design. In the course of his work developing small residential units and prefabs, Lloyd became convinced that we just use too much of everything, too much space, too much land, too much food, too much fuel, too much money, and that the key to sustainability is to simply use less. And the key to happily using less is to design things better. Recently, Lloyd has been writing on family heirlooms and the changing culture. I found his work while researching solutions to clients for clients who are confronted with managing the possessions of generations while downsizing. His direct approach to working with our elder parents, along with his prolific writing on a lifestyle focus on less stuff and better design, was a great fit for us. So welcome to the show, Lloyd. Welcome, Lloyd. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I have a question for you. You have a really, really interesting background and your career is really multidimensional. You have, you know, your architecture, you were, you were in architecture, you were an inventor, writer. Uh, so how did you even begin? You know, wh- or where did you begin? And, and how do all these different in- interests kind of connect together? Well, I think it all began because my mother was an interior designer and she really wanted me to be an architect. Ah. So I, <laughs> I, so mean, I, think I have a degree in interior design as well. So I like your mother. She's awesome. <laughs> so I sort of, I won't say got pushed into it, but I went into it and I really, while I was an architect, had a lot of trouble in the sense that I looked at everything I did very carefully and said, like, do people need this? Do I want to work for this client? Do I like doing these big monster houses? I wasn't really happy with it. And I one day got asked by my biggest client if I knew anyone who could go to work in development for him. And I put up my hand and said, yes, me. So I switched from architecture to development, which is how I got to sort of job number two, and eventually had my own development company in Toronto where we did the uh, first condominiums that happened at the beginning of the current boom. But I, I found that problematic too. And basically, through a long series of events that I won't get into, ended up writing about all of this stuff and instead of just doing it myself. And that actually is what led to the teaching gig at Ryerson, where I'm at the School of Interior Design. So, you know, a combination of still looking for the job I'm going to do when I grow up and a short <laughs> attention span means that I've done all these different things. 
Well, it's super interesting. And I have to tell you that I'm really interested in your perspective on design. And you write a lot about design, both from the perspective of being a minimalist and also a conservationist, which is super interesting to me. I really love your quote, which I referenced earlier. The key to sustainability is to simply use less. And the key to happily using less is to design things better. Do you think the design is getting better? What do you think about the the kind of the new focus on minimalism and how it's reaching a wider audience? Do you think that this will have a positive effect on design? Absolutely, absolutely. I was writing last year some stuff that I really learned for the first time about where the drive to minimalism, where minimalism actually came from. And it's got a fascinating history. It primarily developed after World War I when uh, people understood germ theory. They understood why people got sick and they'd lost millions of people in the great fluke campaigns. They knew germs, but they didn't have antibiotics. So they became crazed about designing things that you could keep clean, that you could, everything had to be open for air and sunlight and movable. Mies van der Rohe developed the tubular chairs uh, because nothing could get stuck between the cushions. You could move them to clean the floor easily. Le Corbusier designed all the big open minimal spaces because they were all scared to death of tuberculosis. The whole minimalist movement of the 20s of Le Corbusier, of Mies van der Rohe, of everyone came out of a fear of germs, which I I think was one of the most amazing things to discover. Um, It's still about cleanliness. When you look at it today, it's still about being able to move a chair to sweep under it, about not having a lot of things that capture a lot of dust. Um, It's an aesthetic that actually came out of health reasons in a way that the health reasons don't apply anymore in the same way, because we at least for now still have antibiotics. But still makes as much sense as it did then for living a clean, simple life with lots of sun and lots of air. So very interesting to me. I'm a very big fan of Bajas. And um, I really love the lines and the cleanliness. And I but I had not really ever put that together. But but I completely understand having heard that from you that um, the the new focus on keeping things clean as we began to understand the the role of um, viruses and bacteria and things that we can actually do something about and how being able to clean things led to an appreciation of things being simpler and and, um, and easier to manage, which is really kind of what, you know, the simplicity and, and ease of management um, is really kind of the key to minimalism. Well, absolutely. And I was when I was reading and researching this, I was actually shocked about it because I hadn't made the connection either. But if you look at the big trends in design happening right now, wellness is the magic word. There's the Well Institute. There uh, is well certification. People are really beginning again to think about how our design can keep us and make us healthy. And I think that simply being able to clean, being able to manage your stuff, uh, being able to see under it easily is going to become, again, one of those considerations that get tied in that minimalism and wellness are going to be thought of as two sides of the same coin. Sure. 
Well, speaking of major trends, we should definitely bring up a recently published article of yours, and it's called Nobody Wants the Family Heirlooms Anymore. And that's an article that we will make sure to include in our show notes as well, big link for you guys. But this was the story of getting rid of stuff. And it was based on this idea that has gotten quite a lot of attention lately. And the next generation is really struggling with uh, overconsumption and consumerism of the last generation. So you discussed that you know, um, in that article about, you know, there's an emotional connection to things that, uh, especially um, that have been passed down, you know, from generation to generation. Do you believe this trend will continue or will the next generation be disappointed that, you know, didn't hold on to all of those, um, you know, teacups and and China sets? The teacups, the teacups are for me a particularly interesting thing. When uh, we recently went through a major downsizing where we divided our house in half. And my wife and I live in the ground floor and the lower level and we rent the upstairs to my daughter. And so we had to get rid of a great deal of stuff. Right in the middle of the renovation, my uh, mother-in-law died and my wife had to get all of her stuff out of the way and deal with it. Mm-hmm. And in our dining room is this green cabinet of my mother-in-law's filled with china with her teacups. And this actually makes me crazy. You know, I don't want these teacups, but my wife loves them. And we're still together. So one has to make concessions to other people's treasures. But like even within a household, when this happens, when someone dies and you're dealing with the stuff, you can have two partners in the same relationship where one wants it and the other doesn't. So that's one big complication. The other is our kids, basically, uh, the whole generation of millennials, the housing has become incredibly expensive. They don't have the high-paying jobs that used to be around where you could actually afford to live on your wage. So even if they wanted this stuff, like my son wanted a lot of the stuff that was coming out of both my mother-in-law's house and my mother's, they just don't have the room. And the big stuff that people used to love, the big brown stuff, nobody has room for anymore. It just doesn't fit. So even if they did want it, even if they kind of liked it, it doesn't fit in a modern lifestyle. If you go to Ikea, the stuff that they're buying now is like half the depth and much narrower. Ikea had a crisis a couple of years ago when dressers were falling over and killing children. And the reason Uh dressers were falling over uh, was basically they're half the depth that they used to be and they're not stable anymore. So designs have changed in this way to adapt to the smaller spaces. The other ridiculous thing about Ikea is that You can go and if your grandmother leaves you a sofa and you say, okay, how am I going to get it to here? I'll hire a mover. Well, you can go to Ikea and you can buy a sofa and you can put it in the roof of the car and take it home for less money than hiring a mover to actually move the sofa. So people's sense of the value of stuff has, I think, significantly changed. They don't look at a dresser and say, oh, that's a nice piece. They look at a dresser and say, oh, how does that compare to the one at Ikea that I can just go and assemble and put in the wall and that's half the depth and is designed for a modern apartment? Uh, Needs have definitely changed, and the way we use furniture has changed. 
I have a very funny little piece of furniture beside me that was my wife's great-grandmother's telephone table from the 20s. Wow. It's an entire table and chair together that is designed for the sole purpose of holding a telephone and a phone book because... In the, third, in the 30s when they had them, that's what you did. You had one phone and you sat down in one place with it. Well, I mean, look at life now. What is a telephone table today when we're, everybody has their own cell phone? Our needs have basically changed to where people look at this thing and don't know what it is. Right. Sure. Yeah, and I think it may have something to do with um, the fact that travel-independent occupations are becoming more and more common and that... Um, the the lifestyle, this ability to just pick up and move or work from anywhere. Um, like I know Lloyd, you're you're calling us from a cabin, for example, right? So right. Um, I, I imagine maybe that has something to do with it as well. Um, the fact that um, I know my brother, he's in his early 30s. He's moved already three times um, with his wife, and you know they're now expecting so. It's interesting, like how they they just they don't want a lot of heavy things. They don't want um, to lug around uh, things that just can't be moved easily. Exactly. And, uh, you know, a lot of houses and apartments, it's really small. It's really hard to even get stuff in. After I duplexed my house and we were living on the ground floor, I took a sofa that was bequeathed to me from by my mom, a really nice piece and to get it into the house, because I'd changed the entrance and there wasn't a grand hall anymore, they had to go through to the backyard, around a tree, and get it through the, you know, it was just insane. I wanted to go to Ikea and get a flat pack. Um, so, a I, oh, and I remember one case, a developer I, I knew many years ago, he designed these apartments that basically... You just couldn't get a double bed into. If the bed was assembled, it just couldn't get around the corridors. And the, they were basically paying carpenters to saw the furniture apart and reassemble it at the other end. Wow. Or actually giving buyers, here's money, go to Ikea and buy a new bed. Because the designs have gotten so tight, square footage is so expensive, that nobody thinks of this anymore when they design it, that some people might actually have big stuff. Right, right. Your articles in particular were very meaningful to me because I actually come from a, um, a background um, in Kansas. I, I live in New York City now, but I grew up in Kansas, and I have a very strong memory, maybe even one of my earliest memories, um, when my great-grandmother passed away. She lived in a, uh, a farm community in the middle of Kansas, and all of the grandkids were invited to come to her home after she had passed away and some time had passed and basically just load up with whatever they wanted to take. And so my parents, who were very young parents at that time, came down to the farm community with a U-Haul and we loaded up a, a truck full of furniture. And I literally grew up surrounded by my great-grandmother's furniture, um, which was, and, and in some ways it was really hard as I, began to, as an adult, move on and move into an urban environment because it felt as though those pieces of furniture had somehow absorbed the memories of my entire family. Um, all the stories, everything that I knew about my background and the people that I came from had kind of been almost soaked into that wood. So as time has gone on, I, 
you know, I've slowly, everyone in my family has slowly let go of those pieces. I have one piece in my, in our apartment now that came from my great grandmother's house. Um, and I used to be surrounded by those things. So it's, it's really interesting about, uh, you know, letting go of some of those things and moving on from that, that heavy furniture, right. brown furniture, uh, kind of of our past. I, I have, been happy in my family that the transition has been relatively easy. But when I've been working with clients, sometimes there's just a lot of emotional um, work that they have to do around letting go of those things or conversely telling their own parents that they really don't want all of that heavy furniture. How, how have you managed to make those conversations in your life? And how would you suggest um, our listeners approach that topic without causing too many hurt feelings in their families? Well, uh, one of the issues here, my mother was a designer and was a collector, and her place was very beautiful, and you just went in, and you were just surrounded by all of this stuff. But then when you really got into it, and when you looked closely, you found the Chinese plates all had staples, and the lacquer boxes were all peeling off. She had a great eye, but she really also had an eye for a bargain. So you sit there and think, oh my God, we've got so much to deal with. And what we found was most of it really wasn't as valuable as we thought it might be. You know, you bring people in and they look at it and they say, well, you know, look at this. And some pieces were really valuable and others were not. Um, It was, uh, you know, you basically have to adjust to the fact that what was valuable to your mom is valuable to you emotionally rather than financially. And once you do that, then it becomes much easier. Then you can just Instead of saying, well, you took this piece, which is really valuable, so I need that piece that's really valuable, my sister and I and my kids, we could all just walk in and say, well, that piece really reminds me of mom. I want that, and I want that. And then my sister and I basically just brought in someone that take everything else away and sell it, and we didn't think about it. But then we're both grown up. We both have our own houses. We both have all our own stuff. I totally remade my living room with a lot of my mother's stuff. It now almost looks like her living room because she had a good eye and she had fairly good stuff. When my mother-in-law, when my mother-in-law passed a few years ago, she didn't have a lot of good stuff. So uh, we don't have much of it. We have two pieces of furniture and that's it. My daughter happened to love some of the big brown pieces. She has them upstairs. But we were also lucky. I have neighbors neighbors nearby up here who uh, this woman's two brothers both wanted this I won't say ashtray I think it was a coffee table or something they didn't speak for 20 years because they each wanted this table so much it was so an important part of their lives and it was it was worthless it was just emotional not practical or logical some people that happens fortunately with me my sister and I were very rational and it didn't wow You must find that in your work all the time, where people are attached to things in bizarre emotional ways that have nothing to do with the inherent value of the thing that you're discussing. Yeah, I I actually told my friend that the other day. I feel like I'm in the business of kind of helping people uh, 
face reality, essentially, <laughs> or um, come to terms with with reality, whether it be the amount of space you were working within, or the like you said, the the inherent value of of the various things that we surround ourselves with. And well, I'm sure you find the same thing I did as an architect that you don't know whether you're a designer or a marriage counselor. Sure, you know, <laughs> exactly. Uh, oh, you wear day, many hats, many many hats. <laughs> well, um, I, I know I was fortunate enough to have my grandmother and my grandfather and my mother's side in my life. Um, they for quite some time they were um, uh, around late 90s when they passed away. Uh, but I know what was really hard for me was when I noticed that my grandfather um, had some tendencies to hold on to uh, so certain items and he would kind of tuck them away into that secret room, you know, <laughs> like right. that we couldn't we couldn't really, you know, I would always ask him about it. Like, what's in there? Let's go through it together. And he'd always say, oh, not not today. Another day, maybe another day. And unfortunately, he passed very suddenly, and that was very hard for our family, and we all had to kind of come together and deal with what was in the house. And uh, unfortunately, I, I re realized that just, I, I remember standing in the middle of that room and just feeling um, just the weight of everything in there and so worried that I was going to throw away something that was particularly valuable or had a story. Because like you, Lloyd, I love to integrate my home with uh, family heirlooms uh, that really, you know, fit my style and have a story. I have my grandfather's typewriter, for example, in my office um, that he learned, you know, how to type um, on that on that machine. And I'm sure there was things in that room like that that had a story and that I could really be connected to. But unfortunately, I could not get past the hurdle of having the conversation, uh, you know, before the, he passed. And so I was wondering if you had any tips on on getting those conversations started before, you know, independent of having to you know talk with family members after um, someone we love moves on. Uh, anything that we could that could we could that would help us kind of start that conversation before we get to that point? Well, I think the most important thing that you hit upon is that you've really got to start early. Mm -hmm. Well, the, you know, the longer one waits, the harder it gets. My mother, who died at 99 years old, uh, was had all her marbles and was in perfect condition and would say, you know, I want you to have this, I want you to have that. She'd write little notes about different things and put them in her desk. And then three years ago, she had a tragic fall and hit her head. And it was like we lost her instantly. And suddenly we couldn't have any more of those discussions. Mm -hmm. And so even though she lived on for another three years, there were no more, what do you think of this mom? Who should get this? Is this any valued? Tell me the history. Where did you find this? Where did you buy it? Because um, everything she owned did have a story. And mm -hmm. I think leaving it till she was 96 was like being pretty silly in the first place. But when she had her fall, that was the end of it. Mm -hmm. So we missed those stories and you've got to get them early. Now, one thing that totally shocked me, because my mother had boxes and boxes of photographs, is that my sister lives in London, England, and they would come and wouldn't know what to do, would go through these boxes with my mom and say, who was this and who was in this picture and what happened? And my sister spent about an hour, two hours every time she was in town going through with them all with my mom and 
I was totally surprised to find that I now have three photo albums with everything described and everything mounted and everything labeled instead of just a pile of photographs of people I didn't know. So that's like a prime example of, I think, what happens when you start early, when you start when they're really willing to talk about these things, when they're really willing to tell the history. My mother also left little pieces of paper and behind paintings. You know, if one was bought at a certain gallery or it ever was shown in another show or anything anywhere, she'd have little notes there. In fact, we had to go through all of her books to find letters from designers and someone she wanted to have make a Uh, furniture for her. She even had a correspondence with Frank Lloyd Wright, which unfortunately we couldn't find. She wanted him to design a chandelier for her, and he said no, but I haven't found that correspondence yet. Oh, Oh my gosh. That sounds amazing. Wow. Yeah, it's... it's, um... I think it's important for the grieving process as well um, to get those conversations done ahead of time, because when when you are trying to prepare for a funeral or uh, prepare for transition in in property or things like that, it's like the last thing you want to be doing is trying to figure out, you know, is this piece of paper important? Is this, you know, uh, ashtray, as we said, you know, valuable. Um, So yeah, it's, it's something that I think we, we've, um, it's the reality of a situation where sometimes two generations um, are downsizing at the same time or dealing with clutter at the same time. Uh, And I think you addressed it so well in in your article. Um, And do you believe that, you know, there's, there's anything else that, that uh, helped you through your own downsizing moment? Well, the downsizing actually was harder than dealing with the parents because the downsizing was totally voluntary. You know, you could put things off. You didn't have the pressure of losing the lease. And, you know, we basically were in the house before we had a basement and we had a third floor that we weren't using. So, you know, it was very easy to just accumulate massive volumes of junk and stuff. Oh, I'm not ready to throw that out. And this was about when I sort of read Marie Kondo's book. And of course the phrase spark joy, uh, does it spark joy? Because I basically knew that when we finished the renovation, we didn't have space anymore. We didn't have uh, just room for junk. There was a wall in the garage and uh, a tiny little space under a stair landing, and that was pretty much it. So my wife and I really had to go through everything and just decide, do we really want to keep this? And some things we kept because, well, you have to have pants and you have to have tops, but I was going to get down to the absolute minimum that would fit in the number of drawers that I had. There were other things that I came that I kept because they're really useful and they're part of my well that's the great William Morris line from 1880 do not keep anything in your home that you do not find to be useful or believe to be beautiful I mean if it doesn't meet those two criteria you know it should go out uh, and that really doesn't spark joy is the more modern fra- way of phrasing William Morris so we did that And it was very, very hard. It was actually harder than the downsizing of my mom because there was no gun over our head. But we did manage to get rid of, I'd say, huge volumes of stuff. We actually, because my children are of the age, they were between 20 and 30, where they have so many friends who are starting it out are really poor, 
uh, we just had a giant open house and said, guys, come take it. You want cutlery, you want dishes, you want this. There was stuff from Kelly's mom. There was our stuff. But instead of selling it or taking it to the junk dealer or having a garage sale where we might have gotten 50 or 100 bucks for all of this stuff, we knew it was going to young people who were friends of my kids who were actually going to put it to use in starting up their own homes and spread it around to a lot of people. And even though we didn't get any money for that, uh, we really felt good about it. And so this is something if you have uh, if you have children who have friends about that age that I highly recommend because it was incredibly satisfying. We brought beer, we bought pizza, we let them all come in, we let them go out with everything they wanted, and everything was gone by the end of the day almost. Wow, that's a really great way of putting that and and talking about how passing those things on to someone who can actually use them so much ties in with, I think, a lot of the Kanmai philosophy, which is this idea that if something's not being used, then it is not fulfilling its purpose, which also ties into, I think, the William Moss quote, which is something that I've I've hung on to a good part of my life um, when it comes to my work, because I, I, I think that everything has a purpose and it should be able to fulfill its purpose. And when, when we work with clients, um, and they're letting go of things. One of the things that we talk about is where can this go to be most useful? And a lot of times that's just getting donated. Um, it's even more special though, when you're, um, letting it go to someone that you actually know and know that, that they're going to benefit from it. So, um, I think that's really a, a really neat idea. And one of the things that as you were speaking, I was thinking of is that, um, there is this idea that once you let go of the emotional impact of an item, it's making sure it goes to the right place, which a lot of times is more difficult because people don't want those things. And I think because of the, the kind of the focus on living a more sustainable lifestyle, um, so many people are letting go of so much stuff. I know that like the Salvation Army and the Goodwill stores are just packed with stuff that, 10 years ago, people would have just, you know, loved to have gotten a hold of for, you know, what, what you pay at a Goodwill shop. Um, and now they're like turning things away. I recently worked with a couple who are moving to a smaller apartment and they have some things that I, I absolutely know 10 years ago, they would have been able to sell for a nice bit of money. And now they're having a hard time giving it away. So this is a real kind of, it's a double-edged sword that, you know, we're not able to use these things that are so sturdy, you know, that they're, they're not Ikea furniture. Ikea furniture is kind of meant to last a certain amount of years. And then, you know, it's kind of past its useful life. But some of these things that are so durable and sturdy, we're having a hard time finding a use for, um, which is kind of, it's interesting, but it's also kind of problematic. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or. Well, the, um, the one thought I do have about that is that this is one way that modern technology like the internet is going to help us out more and more. There's this thing called the long tail that, you know, there may not be demand right around us for some piece of furniture, but it might be really fashionable and. Chicago or somewhere else. And there are services now that do online auctions that uh, I think are going to make a difference in this kind of thing that 
it may not be popular in your area uh, or with your generation, but if you can somehow tie into that larger audience, um, sort of, they're 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 kind of like eBay's for estate sales, and there's one or two of them I've heard of that I think can have a big impact in this. That you can get the message out uh, because somebody's got to love it somewhere. I mean, it's true that the Hubble figurines and the teacups. I mean, nobody drinks tea the way they used to in little teacups. And I think there's going to be a lot of those that if they're kept around, it's just for sentimental reasons. But uh, other, others, other things, like you say, the solid furniture, there's probably someone who wants it somewhere if they can use these new technologies to actually get it out there to a wider audience. Yeah. I guess it's probably similar to clothing, how how everything kind of eventually comes back into style. <laughs> like now, yes. now uh, I, I mean, high waisted jeans and overalls are like now coming back into style again. Even even it's coveralls. I yeah, was my God, <laughs> I couldn't believe it when I saw. Well, it's it's, it's <laughs> so amazing like to me to think that the nineties. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I was just gonna say it's so interesting to me that now the nineties. Have come yeah, back into fashion sure. as far as clothing goes. And it's just too. like, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, mid century modern is almost uh, passe. Yeah. And, you know, they're yes. right. They're getting into the 90s. Pretty soon, where apartments are all gonna have yellow shag rugs again. I know. Where do you, Lloyd, where <laughs> oh, do you think we'll be like 10 years from now? What do you think the design trends will, will kind of lean towards? <laughs> Well, I keep writing how we're going to be more and more living multifamily in walkable communities. And that means significantly smaller, smaller furniture and less stuff. I think that what we're going to find is particularly with 75 million baby boomers out there who are all aging is that I think that in 10 years, we are just going to be completely buried in stuff, that there's just more out there now than there is possible demand for, because I don't believe that young people today, if they can help it, are going to follow uh, what their parents and grandparents did and move to the suburbs. We're seeing this uh, where I live in Toronto, tens of thousands of kids being raised in apartments downtown, schools opening downtown, playgrounds opening downtown, and they're growing up in apartments. And that just means fundamentally you've got less stuff. So when dare I call it, the great boomer die-off comes, which is going to be in 10 to 20 years from now. My biggest concern is that we're just going to be buried in everything. There's going to be so much. And um, I don't know what it's going to do to the value of stuff. I'm sure it's com- going, it might well completely collapse when there's so much out there. Um, but I do believe it's going to be a problem. I think people are going to want smaller, more portable, more durable uh, things that they can take with them that can get banged around by kids in small spaces because there's not going to be a separate living room and a separate this. I just got back from I just got back from uh, Austria in the spring where I was looking at a lot of housing, and there there are in Vienna there are exactly zero single-family houses. Everybody lives in apartments. This is just how they do it. Everybody raises their families in apartments. And you go into them, and they're lovely, and everybody's very happy, but they don't have a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's just no room. So I think that's going to be the defining trend. Um, Things won't look minimal because 
even with the few things that we have, it's going to be crowded. Sure. Sure. So what would you say, Lloyd, at this point in time is your favorite tip for leading a simpler, more sustainable I'm also life? curious how you define minimalism as well uh, in, oh, from your perspective. Question. Well, I wish I could say that I truly did live a minimalist existence. Like when I designed my apartment with my wife, when we designed it, it certainly looks minimal in the first photographs that we had taken after we moved in. But, you know, the clutter creeps in and the stuff comes in. So it's a constant battle if you talk about a minimalist aesthetic. It's a constant value to battle to keep it that way. But if you think of a minimalist culture, which is a separate thing altogether, a minimalist lifestyle. To me, that means, again, what we talked like William Morris, that don't have anything in there that you don't really need uh, or that you don't really treasure and find really beautiful. And that, I think, is a different thing. It doesn't mean that everything's got to be designed by Charles Eames and come out of uh, the mid-century modern aesthetic. It means that you just have what you need and a few really nice things instead of a lot of schlocky things. And that's what I try and ascribe to. It took me 25 years to find dining room chairs that I actually liked. Before that, I just had junky hand-me-down chairs here and there and that that we sat on until my wife and I found a set of six chairs that we said, okay, we're going to get those. Um, I think that that's the other key thing is that people jump into it too fast. They think, oh, I've got this new apartment. I've got to furnish it right now. Um, I was in the house of a very, very talented architect uh, and his very talented wife. And they built this whole big, beautiful house. And they've completed the house, I think, almost eight years ago. And they temporarily put in a coffee table in their living room, which was quite large, that was basically half a ping pong table on four cardboard boxes. And I was in their house again. I'm in their house once a year. Um, and I was in their house again. And they still have 10 years later, half a ping pong table on four cardboard boxes. Why? Because it's huge and square and they can cover it with books and stuff. And it always is a conversation piece. And everybody always looks at it and laughs because that's what their coffee table is, a ping pong table on cardboard boxes. And it's wonderful. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that I think really works, that it can be eclectic, it can be cheap, it can be expensive, it can be ridiculous, like a ping pong table, but it can all work if you've got an eye for style and a nose for value. That's awesome. Well, Lloyd, we ask every guest that we've had on Spark Joy, at this very moment in your life, what sparks the most joy? I'm sitting right now at a dining room table at my cottage that has got a bit of a story. When I was practicing as an architect, I went to convert a building and we went and we cut, cut a hole in the floor and it turns out that it was a former bowling alley. And I cut out all these slabs of bowling alley flooring to use as tables and to use as kitchen counters. And my dad took one and he put steel plate in the bottom to hold it all together. And he had a frame welded up to sit it on. And so the table that I'm sitting on is 
this four foot by eight foot, three and a half inch thick piece of bowling alley floor that weighs about 800 pounds in a frame my father built. So anyone would say, well, that's the weirdest thing I ever heard. And believe me, getting it across to my cabin in a little boat uh, was a real challenge at 600 pounds of wood. But there is no place that I'd rather be than sitting up here in my cabin around this big piece of bowling alley, uh, looking out at the lake. And it, I think, is the thing I treasure most. And the funny thing is, it's the biggest and heaviest thing that I own, which is a bit of a contradiction. (laughs) Well, as long as it sparks joy. (laughs) That's that's all that matters. (laughs) Well, Lloyd, do you have any final words of wisdom regarding uh, life, uh, (laughs) decluttering, simplifying that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I think we said it before, and I think the your name of this whole thing about sparking joy um, is what I think really, really matters, that I've got a lot of things that are worth money. I've got a lot of other things that are worth nothing, but I keep them because I do love them, because they do uh, mean something to me. And um, I think that's the single most important thing about it all, that what it's Worth is uh, on the marketplace is irrelevant. What matters is how much it's worth to you. Perfect. Well, thank you for joining us here at Spark Joy. It was great having you here. Thank you. A pleasure. To connect with Lloyd, you can visit Tui Hugger at TuiHugger.com, Mother Nature Network at MNN.com, or follow him on Twitter at Lloyd Alter and Lloyd Alter on Facebook. So now we want to hear from you. Tell us your burning, tidying questions or share stories about how Kanmari has impacted your life. You can find us at www.sparkjoypodcast.com and click Ask Spark Joy to leave a question or comment for a chance to be featured on next week's show. You can also join the discussion on Facebook or on Twitter at at Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope your day sparks joy. Thank you for listening to Spark Joy with your host, Kristen Ivey of For the Love of Tidy in Chicago and Karen Sochi of The Serene Home in New York City. Spark Joy, the podcast is not endorsed by or affiliated with Conmari Media Incorporated. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the co-hosts and guests alone and do not represent the corporate position of Conmari Media Incorporated or the Conmari Consultant Community.